Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. The Romadom Festival was a spin-off for the name given by the IDF to the alarm system that alerts the residents of the Gaza border every time a rocket launches from Gaza, called Seva Adom, which means red color in English. First rocket fired in 2001. And after 20 years of constant rocket fired from Gaza, it seems that the only thing changed is the Hamas capabilities and abilities. How is it like to live in the north in Negev, under ongoing rocket launches, without knowing when Hamas will fire and where will their next rocket fall? Does the Iron Dome really allow the residents to sleep in peace and quiet? Ilaf Fenlon, who lives in Nativa Asara, an Israeli moshav located less than 300 meters from the northern border with Gaza, is a tough farmer who is here to tell us more about life in the south and how she sees the future with our neighbors. Welcome, Hila, to Balagan. Hi, Kobe. It's an honor to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hila is a dear friend, and as I mentioned in the opening, she's a farmer living in Nativa Asara. Hila, tell us a little bit about the life in the Moshav and about Nativa Asara, where you live. Okay, Nativa Asara is a small community in the south of Israel, right next to the border with the Gaza Strip. I was born in Nativa Asara, but actually it wasn't where it is now. I was born in Nativa Asara when it was still one of the very few settlements in the Sinai Desert, just before Israel returned it to Egypt after the peace agreement they had back in the 80s. I moved with my family, I was just a child then, with the rest of our community to a new location. And when Israel back then asked us, where do you want to go from the Sinai, the people of my community had two requests. First, they wanted to continue the great things they did in the Sinai, which is to grow vegetables, to be farmers in a desert soil, in the desert. So they asked Israel to find them a new location, which will provide them the same climates and the same agricultural condition in a new place. And Israel said, fine. What is the second condition? And the second condition was that we want to do it inside the international borders of Israel. Because as we all know, Israel, which I assume all of us agree have the right to exist, have an international dispute about what is the borders that Israel should exist in. But not all of Israel, unless you come from Iran or North Korea or other countries like this, If you don't come from these places, you do agree Israel have the right to exist, and most of its land is not under any kind of dispute. So Israel has some borders that are under international agreement. And because my family and my community already gave up their homes once before for a very good reason, for peace, they asked Israel to find them a desert soil inside the international borders of Israel, in a territory that is not under dispute, so they can rebuild their homes rebuild their farm, rebuild the community in a place that will be their home forever. And this is how I find myself moving with my family and my community to where we are now. Yes, we are next to the border with Gaza, but we are inside the international borders of Israel in a territory that is not under any kind of dispute. Now, sometimes people ask me, but if you had so many other options to go inside Israel. Why did you go and choose to live in such a problematic environment, in such a problematic area? 
And the answer is that when we came here, when I came as a child with my family, Gaza wasn't a problematic area for us. Gaza was just a city. Actually, Gaza was a nice city. And I have memories as a child going to visit Gaza, going to the market, going to the restaurants, going to the beach. This is my memories as a child. With the Palestinians. And That's what you're saying. The, you lived in coexistence with your neighbors. Absolutely. They were our neighbors and they were good neighbors. And we used to go there to do our shopping there. They used to come to our community or to Israel as a whole and to work here. And we had very, very good connections with them. Actually, we have some people that until today have good connections with them. But things changed. And when people ask me, do you remember where it changed from Gaza being just a city to Gaza being the last place we would ever think to go to? Actually, I, I remember this day very clearly. I mean, it was a process, but I have a mark that tells me that was the change. The change was when the extremists in Gaza started to raise, they did everything in their power to try and break this coexistence. And in the beginning, it was just a small group, but they did noise. And the noise was the fired rockets. In the beginning, they used to fire rockets only at the settlements inside the Gaza Strip. But slowly, slowly, they started to fire the rockets a little bit further. And the day, the first rocket, the first rocket that ever landed inside the international borders of Israel, actually not in a settlement, but in an Israeli village, it was in my village. And the reason I remember it so well is because it was in my farm. So for me, it was one morning I woke up and all of a sudden there was a rocket that was sent from Gaza, from that city that I knew so well, into my home, into my house, into my farm. And that was a huge change. When was and that? Another, that was in April 2001. And the reason I remember the date is because I was nine months pregnant with my first son. Not only that one day I found out there is a rocket that was sent into my home, into my farm, I knew that my reality changed completely and I was just about to have a baby. So your baby, which is now, he's almost 20 years old, actually grew up to this reality of uh, rockets fired. So he doesn't know anything else. That's what you're telling me. My baby is not a baby anymore. He's now a soldier in the IDF, like me, Israeli child, protecting uh, his family and his community and his people from all the threats that Israel have. But for 20 years, he was a child that grew up under rockets as a baby. He experienced things that I can't even explain to people. I mean, how do you explain a baby? He has to be safe from rockets. You know, when the rocket started, it changed our reality very quickly because Israel understood very quickly that this situation is not going to change. And the reaction of Israel was to provide us a shelter in every place we are. And that means that every house and every public building and every street corner were added with bomb shelters almost immediately. Now, bomb shelters can't help you if you don't know you need to be in them. So they also provided us an alarm system telling us a rocket is coming. Today, we know this alarm system is Seva Adom, red right. color. It's an alarm system that once a rocket is being launched from Gaza, 
you get an alarm, loud speakers shouts at you, red color, red color, seva adom. And you have to move as quickly as possible into a shelter. Now, most people who know a little bit about the situation, they know that the people who live next to Gaza have 15 seconds. But the closer you are, the border, the less time yeah. you have. And because Nativa Asara, my community, my village, is the closest community to the Gaza Strip, it means we don't even have the privilege of a full 15 seconds. In reality, from the time we hear the alarm until the rockets actually land, we have about three or four seconds. If you want to ask me how many bomb shelters we have in our community, well, you're always going to be three or four seconds away from a bomb shelter. This is how many bomb shelters were added here. You walk in the street and every few meters you have a bomb shelter so you can run to. So when your kids were very young and you send them to the grocery shop to bring something, you used to tell them, you know, don't forget to watch yourself in the road and don't forget to watch yourself from rockets. And if you hear an alarm, run to the shelter. And kids grew up thinking about rockets 24-7. When my baby was just a baby and he couldn't walk anywhere, we used to have, at average, about 20 alarms a day. In average, 20 alarms a day. And I used to hear the alarm. I used to grab him and run to the shelter as quickly as I can. You know, he was three months old. He was six months old. He was nine months old. He couldn't go anywhere. So I used to grab him and run with him. One day he was next to me, he was one year old. I heard the Tseva Adom alarm, the red color alarm. And I'm turning to pick up my baby and run with him to the shelter and he's not next to me. And it's like, oh my God, where is my baby? And I'm looking, he was already walking at this time. He was in the, the shelter. shelter. He just ran into the shelter. Why would a one-year-old run to a shelter? Because that's what he knows. And how do you explain life to a baby? How do you explain what is the rockets? Why are they being fired? Why is it all happening? And that one-year-old baby became two and three and four at five. At what age do you sit down your kids and explain them about the Israeli-Gaza conflict? I mean, they're growing up thinking this is life. Now, imagine those kids. As a mother, I have two kids personally, but some families have three, four, five kids. You know, rockets don't have a schedule. You don't know when the next rocket will be fired. It can be at two o'clock in the afternoon, but it can also be at two o'clock in the morning. And imagine you sleep in your bed and all of a sudden the red color alarm starts. It's two o'clock in the morning. You have three or four seconds to wake up and realize what is going on. You know, the rockets are coming and you have three or four seconds to jump from bed, grab all your kids and run with them to the shelter in three or four seconds. Is it possible? It's not possible. But when you go to sleep at night, you want at least to know that your kids are safe, that they're sleeping in a safe place. So you put them in the only safe place that you have in your home, which is your shelter. And this is how you find kids that live inside the international borders of Israel in a territory that is not under dispute, that have been sleeping every night in a shelter for the last 20 years. And there was never a point that you thought that a change will come. If we'll go to 2005, something big happened in 2005 with Gaza. Something big happened with Gaza and something even bigger happened in my home. Because 12th of August 2005 was the day of the disengagement. 
the day that Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister, decided to pull out from Gaza and tell the extremists who were shooting these rockets, right, you are shooting at us, we are leaving, we are going, goodbye. And as somebody who lived here, I didn't really think that was the right way to do it. I thought it's the right thing to do, but not that way, not to just like pull out, no agreement, not giving any strength to the positive powers in Gaza, just to leave it all behind like it never happened. But even though I thought it was a mistake to do it that way, I still had hope that it will change something. I, I just thought, okay, perhaps the other side, we said, okay, the Israelis left. Now we had enough of all this war. Let's leave it all behind. So I was hoping it will be behind us. But not only it was behind us, everything got worse. And personally for me, I mean, things got better, but outside of the home, it got worse because 12th of August, 2005, the day of the disengagement, the day Israel pulled all the Israelis out of their homes and brought them inside the international border, it was the day I gave birth to my second daughter. And when I came back home with her as a baby, I was hoping I won't have to teach her in the age of nothing to run into a shelter to save her life. And not only that I was wrong, I was very wrong because if until then we had mostly what we call Qassam rockets that Hamas fired toward us. Now Hamas come very close to our homes, literally in our doorstep. And it put all of our community in a threat directly from Hamas, but also in a threat of mortars. Mortars, much deadlier weapon, even though it's smaller, it's much deadlier. It's official weapon, factory made. And mortars, because they are so short range and so small, we didn't even have the privilege of an alarm that gave us three or four seconds. It just landed around us everywhere. And we had to develop a sixth sense of people who live next to Gaza to know that a motor is coming. And it was like raising kids in a battlefield. I mean, imagine how is it for kids to sleep in their bed at night knowing that their bed is not safe. To fear going to bed, to fear going to take a shower, to fear playing in a playroom, to fear walking on the street. You know, a lot of people look at the rockets and, you know, I see it every cycle that we have here, every operation, every war. People talk about numbers. The journalists always talk about numbers. How many people got hurt here and how many people got hurt there? And I want to tell you something about the rockets Hamas is firing. People ask me, you know, how many people got hurt from your community? And my answer is 100% of the people. You know, Hamas is a terror organization. When Hamas is shooting rockets, if he managed to hit someone, to injure or to kill, this is the bonus for him. He's not shooting rockets in order to kill people. It's a terror organization. He's shooting rockets in order to terrorize them. And the rockets are a very, very effective weapon in the hands of a terror organization. And for more than anything, these rockets that are being fired at my family, myself, my kids, they're trying to terrorize us. And it's a very, very effective psychological weapon. And the fact that Hamas is shooting it straight from the center of the civilian centers also makes it harder to, uh, to stop it, I guess. You know, at times, you know, I sit here and we experience rockets daily. And I watch the news. Nobody reports it. 
Everybody got used to the rockets except of us. Even in the Israeli media, there are times that the rockets that are being fired from Gaza are not reported in the media. Why? Because it's in the South, it's became a way of life, and it's something that Hamas is doing. Hamas is shooting rockets toward people. The fact that we are running to save our life again and again every day, it's irrelevant. But Hamas, you know, when he shoots the rocket, he knows the rules of the game. Because if they shoot, you know, certain numbers of rockets a day or a week, they are fine. They know Israel is not going to react. But if the numbers are going to increase, at some point we can't live here anymore. Because the instruction tell us that if there is an alarm to be safe, because sometimes the rockets come in groups, because sometimes there are leftovers, because sometimes, you know, they can explode later. The instruction tell us that we need to stay in a safe room for 10 minutes, every alarm. Some days we have 20 alarms a day. That means that officially we're supposed to sit in a bomb shelter three hours and 20 minutes in a day when according to the entire world and even in Israel, nothing happened. I just spent three hours and 20 minutes in a bomb shelter today. And according to everyone, nothing happened. Well, a lot happened. I was under fire. But if it's only a certain amount of rockets a day, nobody's doing anything. Nobody's even reporting it. But when the numbers increasing, eventually we can't spend time in a bomb shelter. Our life becomes so unbearable that at some point we need to ask somebody to do something. Now, Hamas is the one that decided how many rockets is going to shoot at one day. And Hamas knows the number. Hamas knows when he continues to shoot more than a certain number a day, Israel will react. It means Hamas knows exactly when a war will start, when Israel will react against those rockets, and he decides if and when he wants to have this reaction. So sometimes it's difficult to sit here in the border knowing that a war is going to start within a few days or within a few weeks because the numbers of rockets are being building up every day. Knowing that it's going to happen, nobody is talking about it. But then one day, headlines all over the world. Wow, Israel just bombed Gaza for absolutely no reason for the eyes of everyone. Because nobody ever talks about what happened in the Israeli side, what Hamas is doing to the Israeli side. And unfortunately, and this I'm saying as a left winger in Israel, nobody's talking about Hamas' responsibility to what is happening here in the region. And not only about his responsibility to what happens to us, the Israelis. I mean, I'm looking at my government. You should have responsibility towards my life. Nobody talks about Hamas' responsibility to his own people. Nobody's talking Hamas' choices to shoot rockets from a top of a school or a top of a hospital. Everybody talks about Israel's responsibility when they try to stop Hamas from shooting these rockets. Hamas, when he chooses to put the rockets on a roof of a school, it's a win-win for him. Because if he'll manage to shoot towards Israel, he wants some points. But if Israel will bomb this school, Hamas will win the public opinion. It is very sad to know that it is a military conflict, but it's also a public opinion conflict. And the more Israel will win the military conflict, the more Israel will lose the public opinion war. And Israel is being judged often for all the moral decisions that she's doing. But 
Why is Hamas never being judged for his moral decision? Why shooting from a roof of a school is never being judged by the international community? Hamas is using his own people to gain points. And unfortunately, the more the Palestinian people, the everyday people suffer, suffer. the greater Hamas is. The bigger Hamas benefit is. is for the Hamas. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. I don't know how to say it in English, but it's crazy. The more they suffer, the better it is for the Hamas's PR. And, and, and he can't lose this war because the more he loses, the bigger his victory is. And the world is playing to his hands. Instead of saying terrorism is not a way to achieve anything, they're telling him the more you create conflict in the area, the more support you get. Is it ever going to stop? I'm saying as a left-winger in Israel, if people want to help not Hamas, but the Palestinian people that really suffer from that terror organization, Hamas, the same way I suffer, you know what, my neighbors, the Palestinians, they suffer more from Hamas than I do. And instead of the international community come and say to Hamas, we are not accepting what you are doing, you must stop. They're telling him, carry on. This is crazy. So I want to ask you another question, because you're saying eventually that Hamas is responsible for the suffering of people on both sides. But you're also saying that actually Hamas is the one that is controlling even the Israeli government's responses, that they are the ones setting the pace. So I want to ask you, and by the way, you're talking about the Israeli media, and you are right. I remember that if they mention it, firing on the southern border of Israel, they would call it tiftufim, as dripping, you know, that it's not something that happens like what happened now in Shomer HaChomot, that they fired thousands of rockets and it was towards the center of Israel as well. It's just a couple of rockets a day and they call it dripping because it's from time to time. So what do you think is the solution for this situation? Because it's an ongoing thing for 20 years now. And I remember that now we may see a different government in Israel But it was Benjamin Netanyahu who promised in 2008 to crush the Hamas. And it seems that nothing changed besides the Hamas abilities and capabilities in the Gaza Strip. Well, what I think is that the solution to Gaza is not in Gaza. The solution to Gaza is in the streets of New York, the streets of Washington, the streets of London and Berlin. Because I see people demonstrate. And they hold in signs and they shout in free Gaza. And actually I support, I shout free Gaza as well. But we need to understand what do we need to free Gaza from. And if I look at the Palestinian, they are victims the same way I'm a victim from the same organization. And that organization cannot be crushed, like you said before. That organization needs to be put back to its real size. is just a terror organization that the international community is condoning? How do you say? Yeah, to condemn, yeah. The... And if the international community wants to help, not me, the Palestinian, the everyday people in Gaza, they need to help them get rid of the hold Hamas put on their life. But there is other things can be done, which once again, not really in Gaza itself. The Palestinians in Gaza are in Gaza, but there's also Palestinians in the West Bank. And I hope that the new government 
if it will establish, will understand that the solution to Gaza is in the West Bank as well. And we need to do everything in our power. It's our interest to live peacefully alongside with our neighbors and try to do whatever Israel can do to bring this relief to our life and to their life, we should do. Now, I know that in past times, Israel did do whatever they can. And there were times that it was the Palestinian who stopped that then. But we must never stop. We can't say, well, we tried it once before. It didn't work. We are not trying it again. No, Israel should be the country that always wish to bring peace and live in peace with his neighbors. And the third thing Israel should do is to be the international leaders of the call to bring relief to the life of the people in Gaza. The people in Gaza right now live in very poor condition and they have nothing to lose. We need to make sure that they will have a lot to lose in a war. We need to give hope to the people in Gaza the same way I need hope here in where we live today because hope is the answer for people who want to make changes. If you don't have hope, you never do anything to change your life. And you have to hold on to something. And Israel should wish for the people in Gaza to have something to hold on to. Mila, that is a really powerful message that I agree 100% with. If they have no hope and they have nothing to lose, it will never end. And Zionism actually was founded on taking the initiative. Israel was never the one waiting for the other side to act. We were always taking the initiatives. So I really want to thank you for sharing your story and to delivering this message. I'm proud to carry it in my podcast. And I really hope for quieter days for us and for our neighbors. I hope so too. And thank you very much for giving me the time to speak up. And I hope my little message will uh, come to more people, telling people that what you see in the media and what you see in the news is not what is actually happening here in the border. It is a much more complicated and wider story than it looks. I agree. You should always know the two sides of the coin. Absolutely. If yes. you want to offer a solution, you need to know the full story. If you know half a story, at the most you can offer half a solution, and half solutions don't solve anything. And just like you said, on the other side, they may be our enemies, but human beings are living as well. And we need to make sure that people can live on both sides, normal life. Yes. And can I, I add that, something else? Of course you can. Yeah. Okay. A lot of time people ask me, how do you keep your kids safe, raising them in such an unnormal environment? And I'm telling people, you know, to keep them safe is not a problem. You know, lock them in the basement and they will be safe. How do you keep them mentally safe? That is the big issue. I mean, how do you teach kids that all their life lived under rockets that there is hope? How do you teach kids that this is not life? And the way I do it is by giving my kids a name and address to the people that are trying to hurt them. And when I'm giving them the name and address, their name and address is not a huge enemy that is there to destroy them. It's not the Muslim world. It's not the Arab world. It's not the Palestinians. It's an organization called Hamas. And once it's not there, 
we don't have an enemy because the Palestinians are not our enemy. They're our neighbors. And if I raise my kids as haters, I don't give them any hope. So the only thing we can do, people on both sides of the border, me as a mother, and I'm sure the mothers on the other side, what we should do, what we must do, is give our kids hope that it can and should change. And, you know, because I grew up here as a child, and I knew Gaza can be just a nice city. If it was like this before, it can be in the future. Now, I have these memories. My kids don't have those memories. And it's my obligation for my kids to make sure that we will never forget that it's possible. Thank you, Hila. That was a really strong message. And I really hope that we're going to witness those days together. I hope so. Thank you very much, Bobby, and uh, have a nice week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.